Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, the story of American public education is a complex one. Beginning with the revolution, Americans began to experiment with modes of public schooling. They experimented not only with educational methods and principles, but perhaps most importantly with the politics of schooling, with methods of taxation and financial support, and of school supervision and governance. The legacy of those changes and the experimentation lives with us today. With me today to discuss its origins and purposes of American public schools is Johan Neem, professor of history at Western Washington University and senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. He is the author most recently of Democracy's Schools, The Rise of Public Education in America, published by Johns Hopkins Press as part of their series, How Things Worked. And I should note this is the third or fourth title in that series. Uh, whose author has appeared on, on the podcast. Johan also has a new book coming out this fall, which we hopefully will talk to him about in the fall. What's the point of college? That's a question. What's the point of college? Uh, Johan, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much much for having me today. Well, uh, we'll get hopefully to uh, what the point of college is, uh, maybe a, a tidbit, a little preview of coming attractions uh, by, the end of, <laughs> by the end of the talk. Uh, but, um, but let's talk about democracy schools. Um, it's a, a study of a specific moment, a rather extraordinary moment in, that we overlook uh, in American history and arguably even world history. Um, I was talking with someone else this today, and we were talking about the rise of colleges, American colleges, after the revolution. And really, I was we're racking our brains, and really, there's nothing been like it in human history, that explosion of colleges uh, across, really across all the 13 colonies and expanding into every new state. Um, you, so you're, in a way, you're studying something that's linked to that, the rise of, the, of common schools. And we'll get to the, what common schools mean. Uh, but you also have a study of the past that has one eye firmly on the present, and hopefully, and we'll get to that hopefully by the end of the of the talk. Um, I'm anxious to first, though, discuss uh, the antecedents of the book. You, your first book was called, uh, based on your dissertation, was a nation of joiners. Um, is this book, is this democracy schools linked to nation of joiners conceptually? Does it come out of your thought because you were focusing on Massachusetts and the creation of civil society broadly? Right, uh, and I can, right. See, I can see how the two are linked. Well, thank you. Of course, they are connected. I mean, I think, I think what connects them most closely is that both both books are about institutions that are vital for democracy. Mm -hmm. And I think what I think of my, I think of myself most as a historian of democratic institutions and norms. And while the particular institutions are different, the first book was about voluntary associations mm -hmm. and groups and the ways that they helped citizens of all kinds, from elite citizens to um, African-Americans and women seeking more influence in the political system to participate. And voluntary associations provided a way for people to develop as citizens. This was the same period that saw the expansion of the public schools, and many of the people who were joiners were actually some of the strongest advocates of public schools. And from my perspective, um, just as we need a pluralistic civil society where people are encouraged, expected, and allowed um, to form groups that reflect their ambitions and aspirations and political agendas and whatnot, we also need common institutions and one of those most important common institutions to people in the early 19th century U.S. were the public was the public school. Mm -hmm. So, uh, institutional history. Or would you call yourself an institutional historian? I would call myself a historian <laughs> of the. <laughs> and why not? And why not? And why um, wouldn't you call yourself I, an institutional historian? Yeah. Yeah, I do consider myself a historian of institutions. Yeah. Um, so explain, explain, yeah. explain to listeners yeah. what that means and and why you're being cagey. An institutional historian 
um, sounds to me like a historian in an institution. <laughs> <laughs> and and it sounds like a historian who's dry. And yeah, of course it does. And I think, but um, but I think I would see myself as a historian of institutions because I think that it's really important for us today when we tend to be thinking about individualism, mm -hmm. disruptive innovation, and these kinds of things that we remember that human beings are communal beings yes. and that we are in we are nurtured through institutions and that our democracy depends on our on the vitality of our institutions and so ultimately i think the reason i study institutions is that i see in them both what we need most and what's at risk for us today yeah we, we of course live in a, a traditionally anti-institutional society um you know, Tocqueville comments on this in some ways, while at the same time uh, noticing how we like to join together together. But at the same time, we are, you know, institutions are perhaps by his classification aristocratic. Uh, nevertheless, I think that institutions survive because, yeah, we are communal beings. And, you know, no absolute monarch just exerts power as a monarch. They have to create institutions to through which to exert power. Henry VIII had the Star Chamber. Um, we could go on. Uh, Stalin had the Cheka. We could we could go on. It, it, everything requires institutions. So the creation of institutions and how they are how they're organized, I I, I it's always of interest to me, frankly. And I would I don't want to. I, I would just say. Yeah, go on. Yeah, one of the things I would say in response to your examples is. They're not the most uplifting examples. They are not. <laughs> I don't know and why they immediately. I, 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 I was thinking of tyrants and thinking of the you know yeah. the, the, we, the idea of the, yeah. the one tyrannical power. Yeah. Um, and democracy, and think, however. Think, yeah. Go on. Yeah. No, I think I think one of the things we need to remember is that if we think about institutions solely in things in terms of things tyrants do to discipline and punish us, we will forget that they're the things we need to nurture and enable us yeah. and. And we'll think of them as more powerful than they are, and then we'll take them for granted. Where, And we're seeing this in our society today, if we look across institutions. We're seeing various ways in which having taken them for granted and not investing in them, whether it's colleges and schools or even corporations in the business world where R&D budgets have gone down in terms because of short-term thinking. We see various ways in which we've stopped thinking institutionally. Mm -hmm. And we're not able to do as much. Mm -hmm. And our lives are not able to flourish as well. And so I think we need to not just talk about the Star Chamber. <laughs> yeah, that was unfortunate. Stalin. But that thank, thank you for making that point. Um, you're, you're, after all, you're interested in democratic institutions. But I think it's interesting. I did pop that out because that is, I think, perhaps the way people do see, Americans at least, have traditionally seen institutions as suspicious and perhaps downright oppressive. Um, uh, while at the same time being some of the great institutional cre institutional creators themselves, but there's always that possibility they could turn on you. That's that's the always that seems to be the part of the anti anti institutional fear, which is shared of course by many historians who don't wish to study them. But let's pass over that. Let's go to common public schooling <laughs> versus common schools. Um, there were public schools before this period, were there not? I mean, there were schools for the public. I can find them in colonial Virginia. Not many, but they're there. Um, what's the distinction between public schools and common schools? That's, yeah, no, that's a good question. It's a complex question. Okay. Um, I mean, there were public schools. It depends what we mean by a public school. Right. I'll say that. If we mean a public school, the way we talk about a public house, like a pub, mm -hmm. meaning a place that is accessible to, to all comers, if they can afford it, but is ultimately still a kind of private institution. There were some schools that were available on a tuition basis for for generally elite Americans. Um, there were, in some places, schools that had um, moderate tax support. Mm -hmm. But the idea that there would be widespread tax-supported public schools universally accessible to all people for free didn't exist. Right. And so that notion of public is a different definition. And that notion of public itself emerges between the revolution and the civil war. Mm -hmm. 
that the idea that public institutions are themselves institutions that are overseen by citizens or their representatives and are generally supported by citizens' tax dollars and are generally accessible to all citizens. Now, we know that there are limits, right, that that certainly in the South, African-Americans were not welcomed into these schools. And in many parts of the North, there was segregation. Um, I would, boys I would, and girls? I would say that there were many, uh, there was certainly a very, after the Civil well, there were certainly many people did not want to have white poor kids going to school in the South either. Uh, and certainly not if there's a possibility of blacks going as well. But yeah, so. Right. So, I mean, so part of what I'm saying is like, even that, you know, we don't, but the idea of public, when people started talking about public schools mm. by the 1830s, 40s, was the idea that these were schools overseen by citizens or their representatives, like school board members, right. and that they were supported or ought to be by taxes as much as possible. That's a shift. Mm-hmm. Um, the other shift, I think, one of the things that I say, and this is where I'm a historian of institutions, is that definition of public dependent on making schools common. So you Mm -hmm. asked about the relationship between public schools and common schools. Americans generally um, were not convinced at the time of the revolution, despite words of, you know, eloquent words by people like education was a public good, a good that should be provided by tax dollars that should be universally accessible. They understood that citizens needed education, but education was seen as a private good, something Mm -hmm. that parents should pay to get whatever level of education they could afford or thought their kid needed. Mm-hmm. And I didn't need to invest in my neighbor's education. Right. So there, that's um, the distinction between the, the growth, the astonishing growth of academies and colleges after the revolution right. versus the creation of common schools. There are many, 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 many more people that believe that they need to pay for their son, sometimes daughters, uh, to become, yes. become citizens and, rep- and mothers. Um, but not so many that think they need to pay for their neighbor's son to be educated to right. be a citizen. And one of the things that was a, you know, the common schools, common means several things. One was, you know, that, that it was designed to cultivate mm-hmm. a common national character. So common in that sense. But the other way that common matters is it was the very success of these new common schools that enabled the emergence of mass public schooling because citizens started to want in. And as they wanted in, more citizens joined. And one of the things, Horace Mann talks about this as one of the um, leaders of the common school movements in Massachusetts, you know, what we need to do is convince the wealthy parents that they're invested in the same institutions as the poor parents. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons they wanted common schools was so that you would have this shared sense of responsibility for the same institutions. And so one of the things I argue is there's a kind of feedback loop. As these schools expanded and more people went, more parents became invested in them and they were more willing to pay those taxes for them. And so you needed these common schools paradox. It wasn't that people said, let's have public schools, let's build common schools. In practice, it was let's build common schools and as more people get involved, mm-hmm. they start to become common. Let's back up a little bit because um, already before the creation of we've mentioned Horace Mann, but before the before Horace Mann creates common schools in Massachusetts, um, New England has I think to use a historical term freaky levels of literacy, um, historical lever, levels of literacy. Um, sure. e- even in by the end of this period, by the Civil War, and this is a I I, I think people tend to under far underestimate levels of literacy in the South actually. Um, Beth Schweiger, who's been studying this and has a book coming out on it hopefully soon, any year now, believes that sometimes it was up to 60%. And that has a lot to do with what literacy means. I think she says that uh, the census doesn't aggregate writing and reading together, I think, as literacy until 1870 or 1880. Um, Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Let's leave that aside for one moment. So somehow Americans were able to read um, much more than matching populations in England, Germany, Ireland, um, the sort of, uh, and Africa, uh, much more than the sort of the, the sending populations, let's call it that way. So how would New Englanders learn to, to read then without common schools? 
Well, there are multiple ways. I mean, some, there is a colonial tradition in New England of having some town-supported schools. Mm -hmm. And some of those schools would teach literacy, reading, writing, and um, ministers would often teach in their communities. They'd have ministerial schools. Parents would often, there'd often be a teacher that parents would send their kids to. Um, parents would often teach their kids. And it was part of the framework of New England labor laws that master craftsmen had to teach their apprentices. Mm -hmm. And so you had, you had, and this commitment came from an expectation of New England Protestantism that people be able to read the Bible and understand it on their own and have an individual relationship through the Bible with God. And so literacy mattered a lot to New England Protestants. And I have to and, say that even uh, an indentured contract, uh, and I mean for an apprentice in Virginia, I have never seen one that doesn't have as pro forma, uh, that they have to be taught literacy sufficient to read the Bible and to be able to do you yeah. know, sums. There's a certain num uh, numeracy as well that's always on the contract. So e e even in the South, right. you see that as well. Of course, the number sure. artisans are, are smaller and apprentices are a smaller population than they are in New England. But nevertheless, right. it's, a, it's a common requirement. No, and you don't. Right. It's a common requirement. Um, and what you don't see that you start to see after the revolution is the same emphasis on citizenship as a fundamental purpose of schooling. And mm -hmm. so that is a big shift that the revolution causes. And so you have lots of incentives for literacy and you have lots of contexts in many ways, you have a very pluralistic um, system of instruction, and people learn often through the work they're doing or through their church or sometimes a church school what, you know, what that community thinks kids need to learn mm -hmm. or what that parent thinks they need to learn or what that employer may think someone needs to learn. Um, but that doesn't mean people weren't learning anything. They were learning, but it what means that what they weren't learning is a kind of what we take to be schooling today, you know, that there are these widespread institutions that teach a particular kind of liberal curriculum that is grounded in the arts and sciences and that is seen as fundamental for all people to have a shared understanding of certain kinds of subjects mm -hmm. just to be citizens mm -hmm. of a republic. That is that is something the revolution really pushes. Let's get back to that in a second. You, you mentioned in the book um, self-culture, which is something I find fascinating. And this is part of, this is something that's added to this system, this very informal ad hoc system. So talk about self-culture a little bit, because that's in some ways, I, I forget who I've just been reading this, suggests that self-culture is in many ways the highest enlightenment level of education. It's what everyone is basically learning to, to get to that stage anyway, is to be self-cultured. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, one of the things I try to I argue in the book is that self-culture never happens alone. Mm -hmm. That the cult, so self-culture meant the formula, you know, as they understood it, it meant the development of each person's particular talents and capacities, including their intellect, their moral sentiments, as they would have said. Um, and in a world that was still endowed with a sense of God's presence, it meant to many Americans understanding both the natural and human worlds because that was part of God's world. And, and many people argued in a democracy, the ability to expand your intellectual and moral horizons should not be limited to a few. And others pointed out that in a democracy and in a Christian society, the idea that some people get access to God's world and not others, whether it's through the study of geology or the study of literature and the cultivation of the imagination is something that we have an obligation to expand to all people. Self-culture happened in lots of places. Mm -hmm. You know, this is where, you know, people, mechanics would be in a mechanic societies. There would be lending libraries. Um, that self-culture was something that a lot of Americans embraced as something they wanted to do. They wanted to improve themselves intellectually and morally. Uh, what the public schools did is say this democratic aspiration to develop each individual's capabilities needs to be something that can be institutionalized on a mass scale. And, and so we need to provide every child access ultimately to a kind of liberal education that would develop them for the sake of their own development. Mm -hmm. And 
I mean, I think we don't hear that kind of language as much today, but it was fundamental to the Common Schools project. And I think it's fundamental. It's, it's, it's importance to that project is worth remembering both to enrich the way we think about schooling today, but also because I think historians have not really paid attention to that point and have sort of seen these schools you know, going back to our talk about institutions as places where students were kind of disciplined in an industrial way. Yeah. And that was not at all the aspiration. The aspiration was for this curriculum that through reading and writing and the study of the natural world, people's, you know, intellectual and moral horizons would just expand and they would be able to see and do and imagine things they couldn't have before and that they would become kind of more human. As yeah. I, I think reading your book, it's, it's quite clear that if you think that they were being being shoveled into common schools, packed into in order to become better workers um, for the burgeoning New England industry. Well, you're bringing a very large interpretive uh, lens with you in order to hammer and hammer the evidence into submission, uh, because it's you. That's not what the primary sources say. Uh, that's not what you find them doing. That's not what I found them. To say. No, I mean, some you know. So, yeah. so let's talk about Horace Mann. Um, he has to be like, <laughs> I was thinking it'd be a, a great list of, you know, there's, you see lists of most important American politicians who are never president. You could say most important American <laughs> public figure who was never elected, well, he was elected to office, but who was never elected to say national office. Horace Mann has to be on that list. Um, so let's talk about a little bit about him and his, what influenced him and yeah. what he, what he did. Yeah. Well, he did serve in the Congress. Yeah, he did. Okay. He, he so was elected. To he national. was elected. Oh, for, but. Yeah. And he was, an, he was, he was a strong anti-slavery advocate, but, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, I mean, Horace Mann, I mean, if anyone ever looks at a, you know, a portrait of Horace Mann and thinks about what, and, or ever hears the word Whig reformer, <laughs> they're probably imagining the most boring human being alive. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> and I was reading like these, an, and, and much less like a guy who wrote annual reports for the state board of education yeah. of Massachusetts. Like much, you can't imagine yeah. someone who would be less interesting. And I was reading his words and I was, and I said to myself, wow, like, you know, if Arnie Duncan or Betsy DeVos talked like this, there would be a kind of romantic spirit in their rhetoric that, that that's totally gone. And yeah. so how did this, the, one of the most boring people who ever lived <laughs> have these ideals <laughs> that, that we can't even articulate to ourselves anymore, uh -huh. you know? Uh, much less in an annual report to the State Board of Education. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, and so I found Horace Mann to be, you know, I think we flattened the our image of some of these people like Horace Mann so much that they become these paper figures. And in fact, their aspirations, their minds, their hearts were much richer than that. And Horace Mann, I mean, the things he says, I mean, the, the fact that he can talk about the imagination mm -hmm. and the need for people to just have, you know, I mean, he had some fears about imagination gone wild if it's not connected to moral truth or something like that. You know, mm -hmm. he didn't want people imagining things that led to sin or something like that. But, but he could still say, you know, human beings are creative beings and they need to study things like math and science and history and literature to cultivate their creativity so that they can just see the world through richer lenses. Mm -hmm. And and that he could say something like that, and it's so hard for us to say, but and we can imagine this guy is being boring. Yeah. <laughs> and so you much, know, I, I mean, actually, we're the ones that want to like make sure that everyone is, is being schooled for a job. Um, and, right, and, and, and there and he is. some really boring learning outcomes or something. Yeah, you know, exactly, that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> So I think I think part of part of my goal in the book was actually to bring him back to life a little bit and the category of people he represents. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, they're not perfect. They have all kinds of flaws. They're human. But but they had real humanity to them. Mm -hmm. You know, this was a person who, you know, in his frustration after being an off, you know, being the secretary of state board of education for for years, said in an annual report that, you know, we can't. If we really believe that every citizen in a democracy is equal and a child of God, then we can't just give them food and shelter. We must cultivate their intellect and morality, their spirit. And if we're going to not do that, we might as well ask ourselves, why are we bringing these people into the world? <laughs> you know, those are, that's a 
that's a pretty strong statement for a you know early 19th century guy to mm-hmm. say. It's a pretty and strong statement it. for an early 21st century person to say. Yeah. Yeah, especially so, one, I mean, especially I, one who's the secretary. Now, can you imagine the secretary of education of Washington State or of Virginia's? I can't. Uh, I can't imagine that in an annual report. Can you? I mean, you know, it certainly would be edited out. Right. Right. It would be edited out and it would certainly not, you know, I think we are very comfortable saying if these people meet these predetermined criteria so that they can get jobs, we've done our job. And Mm. he was actually very hesitant to say that. I mean, he did say that. I mean, he's a practical politician. But he said so many other things that mattered more to him and I think to us. So where did he get this idea? I mean, it wasn't him alone, was it? I mean, or was it? I mean, and was this was this a German influence? I mean, did he go to German university to learn these things? Did he study kindergarten? And where did it come from? Yes, to all of those things, but not just those things, okay. right? He did go to Europe and learn about European pedagogy and European ways. But a lot of those European ideas had already arrived in America. Mm-hmm. So he learned them from you know, his network of friends and, and fellow politicians and intellectuals in New England who, you know, were thinking about this, you know, what, what becomes, whether the sources are English or German, what we think of as the romantic spirit mm-hmm. and the sort of cultivation of the self requires the belief that a person's inner experience of their lives matters. And, and that if you want to have a rich inner experience of your own life, it needs to be informed through learning and reading and study so that the material you have in you is, is good enough to shape the way you see the world around you. And so a lot of that came, you know, came, he, you know, he, he, Read William Ellery Channing, one of the founders of American Unitarianism, a very influential figure for transcendentalism, a very important minister. Uh, but I don't think it narrows down to one person. It was part of the sort of it was part of the cultural intellectual world of New England that he inhabited. And and, and migrants brought, you know, those ideas out to the out to places like Ohio. I mean, you find people giving speeches in Ohio at conventions of teachers speaking in this kind of romantic language. Mm-hmm. And and so he learned it in lots of places. He did travel to Europe, but he learned it in lots of places, including from from intellectuals who are reading and then preaching and or speaking publicly or writing all around Boston. We discussed uh, Pestalozzi a little bit in a discussion with uh, Sarah Ann Carter about her book Object Lessons. Oh, yeah. And so there's a um, so there's that we know that. Uh, is it uh, Mr. Al- Bronson Alcott has brought Pestalozzi's methods to his little his little school in Boston? So those 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 things are all afloat and awash and and moving surging throughout the the intellectual life of um, the United States at the time. But to the practical, he is a practical politician. You said, um, I think one of the most interesting parts of the book is the practical politics. I alluded to this in the intro of how he actually managed to broker and wheel and deal and actually set up the actual system of common schools. And also the interesting debates that then occur in Pennsylvania, I, my attention was drawn to. the. De- so can we talk about that? Because this is actually in many ways, to my mind, this is it's not just the education, it's the politics of education, which are... I mean, they're, they're, they're more or less uh, the sort of politics of education that we have today. Um, how do you get someone who is childless or whose children are grown to pay taxes for someone whose kids they don't know and, and for whom they, who they don't know and for whose kids they don't know? It's, it's still, right. it remains a political problem to this day. Uh, my mother was on the school yes. board of education. This was, you know, her practical political yeah. problem. Yeah, and I think there's two there's two pieces to that problem that and not just Horace Mann. Let's just be clear: there are thousands of Americans right. involved in the in the development of these institutions, and many of those people worked in the years leading up to Horace Mann's position, right, all across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was a this was something that we should see as a broadly democratic, but as you suggest, also politically contested. Mm-hmm. Project and so we don't really want to, you know, Horace Mann is interesting and lovely, but we don't want to narrow this down to Horace Mann. Um, and and so how you know how does this happen? Just to give you a sense, right? Uh, 
there's a great one of my favorite one of my favorite um things I found while I was doing the research for this book was just how much Pennsylvanians resisted the idea of paying taxes for public schools for other people's children, right? And there's this, I, I just love the idea of a heroic school tax collector. But in 1859, <laughs> tax collector, you know, like says, I recall that, you know, he says, many guns were leveled at me and threats made. At one house, I was badly scalded by a woman throwing boiling water over me. At another, a woman struck me on the back of the head with a heavy iron poker. And at another, I was knocked down with stones and assaulted with pitchforks and clubs. But then this collector says, I succeeded in getting away with three cows, which, you know, they would then use <laughs> to, to sell and raise the money. Yeah. Um, and and that speaks to the fact that, you know, this was this was a widespread project, but it was certainly not a unanimous project. And in fact, the resistance was quite deep and widespread. And I think there's several elements to that resistance. Um, one was in states like Pennsylvania, where you have a large ethnic minority, Germans, in the case of Pennsylvania, you know, many people um, said that we're not actually a common mm -hmm. in the sense of the common schools, that we need German language schools that cultivate um, the history, but also our religious faith, mm -hmm. and that common schools won't do that. As you start to have more Catholics, of course, that question came up in the 1840s and 50s more heavily, right? That who is to say we're a common people that can be schooled in common? So that's one source of resistance. Is and, and, we should, and we should note that in many ways, common schools became a weapon to use against both Germans and Catholics, particularly, I guess, against German Catholics. But that's a that's a post Civil War story, and we don't have to get well, we don't have to get to that. Right, and and I would say, I mean, whether you consider it a weapon or not, I would say the way I would frame it is: in public education, we deal with a fundamental democratic dilemma, which is that democracies, especially liberal democracies like ours, must not tolerate, but also encourage and make able people's pluralism. While at the same time, like any social order, we depend on commonness. We mm -hmm. depend on some sort of social trust and some shared ideals and norms and values. We have to see each other as a people. And so, you know, I think they were struggling with real issues that don't, that will never be fully resolved. Mm -hmm. And if we try to pigeonhole one side is good or one side is bad, we lose sight of the struggle. I would I think say is at the heart of democracy. They are the issues that we struggle with. They're, they're really they are the issues that we struggle with. But the practical politician side was, I think the common schools ultimately won the day because of several factors. Um, one is that they were local. Mm -hmm. And so you had a lot of local voluntary activity to, to, to these schools were neighborhood schools, first, first off. They're much smaller. You know, they're not the kinds of schools, once you have automobiles and large unified districts you could have with right. buses. So they're pretty small. You have to have a school board. So there's a set of volunteers, right? Um, and neighbors either know each other or get to know each other through these town meetings and school board meetings. Mm -hmm. They become stakeholders. As parents sort of see the opportunity to send their kids, they send their kids, they start small, you know, a, you know, a two-month or three-month public term, followed perhaps by an extended term for those who want to pay to support the teacher longer. Um, but slowly, more and more people become stakeholders, and these stakeholders are local. It's a very, it's a very real experience. The common school is an institution that, in some ways, yes, state law often gave incentives, like we'll we'll give you this much matching funds from the state legislature if localities will raise X amount of taxes. And later, when they could mandate, we want you to have a three-month school year. So the so it's not that it happened independent of state activity, but the work happened by citizens organizing schools at the local level for their community's children. And so part of the resistance is the problem of pluralism and diversity, that not everyone agrees that their kids should go to the same schools. Part of it, but one of the ways in which the shift from the education as a private good to a public good happens is that you have a lot of, you start to have local buy-in to these mm. institutions. That's a really and good- And as more people are involved, yeah, that's a really good point about the. People. Yeah, that it's so close that they're. they're um, I'm struck by this. I, I don't know if anyone's done a study of how um, the areas in which um, this. The point that schools are so close to the population, 
that you don't have to send people very far, that they are very, very local. So I grew up in a small township in Southern New Jersey with probably 1100 people. Um, and when it about, so about even in the 1950s, everyone went to one of four one room schools in that township. There might, mm. maybe there are 1200, 1300 people there, but of course that they did that because that was as far as they could walk. They could right. walk to school, but that also meant right. that there was an intimate that even in a very country area, it was very intimate. Everyone had their own school. It was, it was akin right. to, it was an extension of the household. We're getting into deep sociology yeah. here. Um, and so it became part of yours. It became connected to your household. It became connected yeah. to your hearth. It became your thing. This, these are very powerful, um, human emotions that were yeah. being activated by having a school like that. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I think well, the that, way I, the... go ahead. No, the way I think about it, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And that people saw this not as the state per se, but as an extension of their collective lives together mm -hmm. as part of the community they inhabited. So the other part of the resistance to these tax collectors comes when people like Horace Mann take these local schools and they say, you know, we can do better. Mm -hmm. Like we can have professional teachers that are trained in um, teaching schools called normal schools. Um, we can have... Uh, more grades if we move more students into bigger schools. We can have a better curriculum with better material and better prepared teachers if we raise more taxes, all of which have reasonable are reasonable arguments. And what happens, though, is that many of these community members say one of two things, right? One is, these are our schools, and now this tax collector is trying to lay claim on it. So there's some citizens start to feel a kind of alienation from these schools. Mm -hmm. It starts to feel like the state rather than extension of their community. Not everyone, right? Because they succeeded. I mean, these are still relatively local institutions. But the other thing that happens is in the 1830s and 40s, as this ambition for this richer vision of common schooling where self-culture and access to liberal education is made more widespread and we're not just doing the basics like literacy and numeracy you start to have pushback by other citizens that say look i understand why i might need to pay to give my you know give my neighbor's kid the basics reading writing some numeracy some citizenship some moral ethics stuff mm -hmm. but now you're talking about literature and science and you know 12 year olds and 13 year olds and why at some point, my responsibility must end for this, right? Mm -hmm. And if you want to give your kid that, that's fine. But why should I have to give that to your kid? And and so, you know, as the common school reformers like Horace Mann move into the picture, you start to have some of the first kind of curriculum battles about whether this kind of curriculum grounded in the liberal arts that doesn't seem as practical as a kind of literacy, numeracy, and civics mm -hmm. kind of curriculum is really required. Is it truly a public good that is required through taxation for all people? And is this more expensive model really something that we need? And so you have that challenge as well. And so you start to have communities and, and legislators and parties dividing over this issue. At the state level at that time. Since then, we've taken it. At the state it, level. At, at that at, time. Since yeah, then, we've no, taken it national. There's no major. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, it's the, but they are extraordinarily recognizable debates. Again, this is what the right. thing about reading right. your book is you, you recognize, oh, those debate, these debates rhyme. Um, they all, they do rhyme. They all rhyme. Um, what was briefly, um, what our stereotype of one of these schools is a one room school with a school marm and desks and like, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 children, barely washed stove, maybe, and everyone doing rote memorization. Is that accurate? Um, what was it like to, how did teachers, um, how did teachers teach and manage classrooms prior to the civil war? Sure. I know that's a, that's a, that's several books, but if you could just, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. give us a paragraph. <laughs> um, the image is not entirely inaccurate. Um, so common school reformers like Horace Mann wanted to change that, mm -hmm. but, but many local district community members thought it was just fine. So so in many places, schools would be, I mean, you'd often just have smaller schools, but you sometimes would have 30, 40 kids 
in a school during the during the winter term you'd often have a male teacher and the summer term a female teacher but not always these things are there's a very it's very pluralistic winter term summer term what what does that mean so there'd usually be um two school terms and winter term would be for example where the older boys would come in because they weren't as needed around the household mm-hmm. and you know and summer term would often be younger kids or um sometimes girls mm-hmm. more than more than boys and they would come in they'd often bring their own readers so you'd have everybody with different books mm-hmm. sometimes and and students would because you're dealing with multiple ages and multiple abilities the teacher's method was often giving people assignments um sometimes there'd be enough people in the same place at, around the same place you give a group an assignment mm-hmm. and then while those people are working on their thing you'd have the other group come forward and recite um their geography lesson or their you know grammar lesson or mm-hmm. their math and you'd work with those students and then you'd send them back and you bring forward another group mm-hmm. right and the schools were uncomfortable <laughs> that part is true and they were you know they were cold mm-hmm. <laughs> um the teachers would often board with with neighbors that was part of the way in which the um, rather than taxation one of the ways you supported the the salary of the teacher was by providing room and board um neighbors would provide the wood for the you know or for the coal for the stoves um so there were different ways in which you would you would support the school and 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 so for all the ownership and all the kind of civic joy that one could take in the fact that these are very local institutions that are in some ways the pride of their communities you can imagine in 1830s and 40s as 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 some you know some of these reformers are walking around or riding their horse around to different schools saying you know we can do better than this mm-hmm. like we could have buildings that are stable we could have teachers who actually have learned some of this material much better we if we institute age grading so you have a you know you have students great you know in grades mm-hmm. as we think about it today we have first grade second grade third grade rather than all bunched together you know we see that today looking back as a kind of industrial factory model It was actually for them a way of saying let's give let's get a bunch of if we bring enough students together that we can have a group of people at the same level together we can intensify that teacher's capacity to make a real difference for those kids. Mm-hmm. And and so you start to have this effort to reform the schools. But those reforms are you know they're in the period I'm studying they're just on the edges. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the first public school like you start to have in the 1850s the spread of the high school and which in turn means the high school it's a high right. higher school but often they were you know they were just a room somewhere <laughs> you know mm-hmm. they and then you start to build you see start to see the first buildings like Central High School in Philadelphia that are these kind of palaces of learning yeah but that's a post civil war thing that it really takes off yeah I, we um, should just touch on that before we close because people are going to be very confused by that uh a uh, very careful listener will have noticed that you referred to people being when people got to 13 or 14 they were like well I don't see a reason for them to go any further than that which now seems crazy to our ears uh but my grandfather Now they should be school to 30. Yes. <laughs> at least. Um but my grandfather he gra- he basically had 8th grade education. Uh and then he went to business school to learn uh double entry bookkeeping and um clerkly handwriting and some other that was business school back then. Yeah. And then maybe typing, I'm not sure. And that was that was a good education. It was before the First World War. He served in the First World War and what when is it when do high schools become national like 1919 or something like that or 1914? Um it's in, it's in your book. I mean they're still district run state institutions right they're not yes, that's it's right. not a national it's not a national thing but it it they're sort of the 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 the, yeah. the the trend finally takes over i think yeah. somewhere by 1920 I mean it's really it's really a yeah the, around the early 20th century yeah i i could be wrong about this but i believe it's like in 1950 50% of americans graduate from high school you know that it's right you know in 1910 it's 10% right. those are those, those could be wrong but, but it's, it's it is a but, shockingly but, big jump Yeah. And it's, But it's it, really a 20th century. It, I mean the roots are in the 19th century. Yeah. 
But the expansion of the mass comprehensive public high school that you see in movies like Greece, you know, mm-hmm. that's a 20th century. Thing. This is what your um, your colleague Murray Milner has pointed out is a very strange. And I never thought about this until I read his book, uh, Freaks, Geeks, and Cool Kids. It's a very strange yes, a soci- social, it is, a strange sociological experiment. Uh, the first time in history that people decided <laughs> to cluster teenagers together, you know, had never been done before. Uh, and, you know, it's, you know, maybe we should, we should probably abandon the experiment. Um, but we, uh, <laughs> but as Murray points out, uh, parents get a lot out of it. Um, yeah. Uh, we all get a lot out of it. Uh, we don't have to be around teenagers. Yeah. Um, so they're all together. Um, but it is a strange... Well, yeah, go on. Go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say that, you know, when the first high schools, you know, came online in the 18, you know, in the pre-Civil War decades and sort of the decades after 1860s, 70s, they were seen very much as academic institutions. Um, and so they were seen as... They were democratic in the sense that the aspiration of their advocates was that no matter your background, you could come from a, you know, working class family, you would have access to higher learning in the arts and sciences. And that actually was amazing, if you think about it, that aspiration that 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 kids could have that. Mm -hmm. The comprehensive high school is a much more social institution, right? It's a place for. Um, the 20th century version that Murray Milner talks about is a place for socialization mm-hmm. and primarily a socialization and and not just a kind of academic institution or a Republican institution to c- cultivate a class of citizens who have a certain set of intellectual capabilities, as might have been understood in the 19th century. Um, what's interesting, and I think this is, you know, if I can turn a little bit to sort of the present. Sure, please. What's in- What's interesting in that world of the 19th century and even the early 20th century where, you know, an eighth grade education and some good and some learning on the job and maybe, you know, um, some business school, you know, is, is enough is that people, I think, recognize that beyond a certain foundation necessary for democracy, and that means both cultivating a sort of common citizenry with common sort of national commitments, but also common civic capabilities, learn, knowing how to think and reason, knowing something about history and economics and science. Um, people should be respected enough that we take their intelligence seriously and that people are smart, even if they don't have all the credentials say they're smart. And, you know, we joke that people have to be in in school till they're 30 these days. I mean, part of that is a failure of labor policy, right? We need to keep people out of the labor market. Part of that is that we don't, we don't respect people's intelligence the way we do it, used to. And so we want people to have these credentials all the time. And we keep increasing the credentials that we require. And the third part about that is it actually makes both the high school and the college uncertain about what their mission should be for sure yeah if you have a mass college is it still supposed to be an academic institution to pursue liberal learning or is it or can it be that or should it be that how could it be that no i'm afraid that's and so we're also actually not true to some of the purposes of these institutions if we think that there's supposed to be everything for everyone under all circumstances and and that doesn't mean they should be elite institutions but they could they still have distinctive roles and i think we've lost some of that yeah they they should be able to take more seriously as intellects even the so-called the stupid kids um or all the kids that are in front of them um in the way right. that you know horseman did um romantic you know no doubt drank warm milk yeah. every day who knows um boring but god he really took seriously the people that were in front of him or the people that he was yeah. working working for, he took them seriously as persons. Well, you know. Yeah, and he, and I think this idea that we take them seriously as intellects really matters. And mm-hmm. you know, I think if, of course, I think it's fair to you know the project never quite. It's a visionary project that never quite achieved its goal, but one of its goals was really to say to kids who may never know that they have intellects that yes. they have them. Yeah. And they can be cultivated. That's a powerful 
democratic ideal of education that I think still matters. And it's um, it's revolutionary and it's truly democratic in the ways in which it wishes to use the resources of as many people within a society as possible. Not just right. their, just not just their votes, but their person and their intellect. Um, and it's been very good. If if all you care about is the economy, it's been very good for economies to have done that. Sure. But it's arguably it's been very good for everything else too. Um, yeah. To have li- liberated. And it could be better. And it could be. Well, I was just thinking about that. I have a, a friend who was observing a charter school in in Somerville, um, uh, in a really bad corner of town. And he was weeping as he told me he realized this was a school that was working with very intensive um, small groups of kids um, and uh, recent graduate students, I think. And they were working on math and science and English. And he was in tears, as he said, he made him realize how many how many Einsteins, he said, have we lost, have we overlooked uh, have have gone through the sieve. They, yeah. the the uh, the sieve was just too big, and yeah. and they graduated without even really knowing how to read, but they were yeah. there. Um, they were well, there. This is the, I mean, I think this is why if we can, you know, we don't want to go back to the 19th century, but if we can learn from some of their aspirations, so we can aspire for some of those things again. I think that would be an amazing thing, both the civic and the self-culture, you know, both cultivating citizens and cultivating human beings and taking their intellect seriously, no matter where they're from. And one of the things that I was impressed by as I was reading memoirs to try to find out what was, how do people remember their experiences as students, right? And, you know, just like students today, it's a very mixed bag. But one of the things people that come up again and again is that, you know, you have kids whose parents are saying, I don't want to send you to school. And the kids are saying, no, I really want to go, (laughs) you know, and, and I want to go because I know there's something there. I don't know what it is exactly, of course. And, you know, and looking back, they said, you know, the schools were imperfect. They didn't always, they weren't always fun. Recess was great, but I had this teacher and this teacher in this public school taught me how to read. And since then I've loved literature. Or taught me how to do this. And since then, I've done this thing I would never have been able to do with my life. And I think that, to me, is reason enough to educate. My guest today has been Johan Neem. He's the author of Democracy Schools, The Rise of Public Education in America. It's available from the Johns Hopkins University Press at fine online and -and brick-and-mortar retail establishments near you. Johan, thank you so much for being on Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Brunat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.